Well, good morning. It is the second Sunday of Advent, which means we're well into the Christmas season. And Christmas is, of course, the time of year that we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Advent is a season of anticipation leading up to Christmas. And it makes us think back to the years and years when the people of God didn't know who Messiah was. They didn't know when he was coming, and they were anxiously awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And we are blessed to live in a time that we know Messiah is our Lord Jesus Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means chosen one or anointed one. It's the same word in Greek as Christ. So Jesus Christ is really Jesus Messiah. But I want you to imagine this morning that you live in a time before we knew who Messiah was, when you didn't know all of the story and the mystery of the gospel hadn't been revealed yet. If you think about the kind of things that we ponder, we talk about what's it going to be like when Jesus returns and what is the new heavens and the new earth going to be like. And the people of God hundreds of years ago were asking those same kinds of questions about Messiah. They had these hints from the messianic Psalms and they had these hints from the prophets, but they didn't have the full picture. And we've chosen Isaiah 9 as the part of prophecy that talks about the Messiah that we're going to focus on this Advent season. Isaiah 9, 6 gives four sort of titles for the Messiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And last week, Pete talked about Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And today we're going to talk about Jesus as our mighty God. And these prophecies about the Messiah kind of serve as the backstory. And I'm going to, I'm going to make the case that the backstory and the audience make the story even richer. And to illustrate that, I'm going to tell you a stupid story from my life that has something scarcely to do with Christmas. So when I was in college, my friend Brian and I had an apartment together. And I had two friends who were coming in from out of town. And Brian had met these people, but he didn't know them super well. But they got to our house before I was home for work. So Brian was just kind of chit-chatting with them and entertaining them until I got home. And he started telling them about a conversation that he and I and our friend Landon had had a few nights before. And the conversation was the worst Christmas present we'd ever received. So Brian told them about Landon's worst Christmas present, which was when he was six, his aunt gave him 2D batteries. No flashlight, no toy to go with it, just 2D batteries for a six-year-old boy. And then... Brian, when he was in high school, his grandmother gave him a yellow sweatshirt with puff paint horses on it. (laughs) And then when he told them about the gift that I got, it was actually there. So he goes, and someone gave Mark this. And the gift that I got was this yellow cup that must have been from the 70s and purchased at a thrift store. It was yellow, like a plastic tumbler, And it had a smiley face on it that said, have a happy day, which is fine. But it had these ridges in it. And there's like 
black stuff caked in the ridges, and there were bite marks on the top of the cup. And I need to tell you, this wasn't a gag gift. This wasn't like dirty Santa. This was a legitimate gift that someone gave me. But here's where the backstory and the audience make the story richer. As you might have guessed, Brian didn't realize it, but one of the two people that he was telling the story to was the person who gave me this hideous cup. And then minutes later, I come in the door not knowing this happened, and I'm like, hey guys, and they're like, he's a jerk. Well, we're going to spend most of our time looking at a story from the book of Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4. Verses 35 through 41, if you want to turn in your Bible, or it's here on the back of your bulletin. And we're going to hopefully establish from this text that our Lord Jesus is Messiah, that he is mighty God. And I think the story is going to get even richer as we dive into some of the details of the backstory and the audience. So read along with me, if you will, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, you are creator of heaven and earth. You are our strong tower. You are our hope. You are our shield. And I pray that you would reveal to us this morning that Jesus Christ is mighty God. And let us get just a glimpse of what that means practically in our lives. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen. So we're going to just march straight through the text this morning, and hopefully by the end of it, you're going to be convinced that Jesus is mighty God. So verse 35 says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So I'm going to stop right there because that's sort of introductory material that you could just gloss over and not think much about. But in Mark 3, 7, it says that they're in Galilee. So what Jesus means when he says, let's go to the other side, is let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We know from Mark 5.1, which is the verse right after our passage, that they show up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the land of the Gerasenes. And this is where the backstory becomes important. Do we have a slide of the map? So if you look... You can see the Sea of Galilee there in the middle. And on kind of the northern part of that, you see Capernaum. Or if you have good eyes, you see Capernaum. And 
That's, that was Jesus' home base. So that's where he is. Over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, that's an area called the Decapolis, which just means 10 cities. And right about in the middle of it, kind of where it says Hippos there, that's where the land of the Gerasenes was. Now, here's what you need to know about it. Hundreds of years before this, when Joshua first took the Israelites across the Jordan, they ran out seven Canaanite nations. And the place that those Canaanite nations settled was in the Decapolis there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. These were not God-fearing people. In fact, when Jesus goes across, they find that there are pig farmers there, which means these are not Jews. These are not people who are keeping kosher. They would have been seen as evil. They would have been seen as enemies. So the idea of Jesus saying, hey, let's go over to the land of the Gerasenes probably wasn't a popular one. But on top of that, Jews were not seafaring types if they didn't have to be. They were superstitious about the water. You won't read anything in the Old or New Testament about Israelites hanging out on the beach or going on pleasure cruises because they frankly feared it. They were sort of superstitious. And you might remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about Psalm 121, we talked about how God symbolically was seen as being up on the mountain. Well, they believed the farther you got from the mountain, the farther you got from the presence of God. And when you got to the water, underneath the water, there were spirits, evil spirits. There was chaos. That was the place of Sheol, the place of the dead. And so they were superstitious about going across water anyway, but especially the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It is the lake with the lowest elevation on the entire planet, and it's surrounded by mountains. So what that means is wind would come down from the mountains and hit that low elevation, and squalls would come up like that. So... With that backstory and that information in mind, I want to read verse 35 again. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So I imagine when Jesus' disciples heard this, what they heard was, hey, let's go across the sea of evil spirits to the home of the devil and let's do it at nighttime. In verse 37, it says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So they started the trip already freaked out, and then the thing they feared the most is already happening. A squall came out of nowhere, and the boat was filling. And I had pictured before when I read this that they were on like, you know, it was like the voyage of the Dawn Treader or some big ship like that. But Archaeologists have actually found remains of a first century Galilean fishing boat and they've made a replica of it. Do we have a picture of that? So that's what a first century Galilean fishing boat looks like. And you can tell that it's basically a glorified canoe with a sail on it. So when Jesus was asleep, it's not like he was downstairs like on a couch watching Netflix or something. He was in that thing. And I want you to remember that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen on this sea who knew just about anything you could know about being 
in a squall on the Sea of Galilee. So my guess is that they were probably shouting orders. They were scooping water. They were doing stuff with a sail, maybe throwing stuff overboard. And so where's Jesus in all this? Verse 38 says, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And see, I doubt that they were actually waking Jesus because they thought that he was going to save them. They don't call him Lord. They call him teacher. He's their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's the spiritual leader here. And do you think that they're going to call the spiritual leader to find out what they need to do in the middle of a storm on the sea? I doubt it. If you think about it, if you're in a zombie apocalypse, you want MacGyver or Chuck Norris. You want someone who can do everything. You are not looking for a spiritual leader. You're not looking for a pastor, right? Um, I don't know if any of you watch Walking Dead. I'm not saying you should, but the pastor on Walking Dead is worthless. That guy's good for nothing. So the chances are they weren't like, we need spiritual counsel right now. Now, you might go to Pete in a zombie apocalypse, but it's because, you know, he probably has a stockpile of weapons. It's not really, it's not really his spiritual counsel that you're looking for. But see, I don't think the disciples thought that Jesus was the man for the job because who is Jesus? He's a carpenter. He's a rabbi, not a sailor, probably not a savior, right? So I think they were waking him up to basically say, hey, Jesus, we're probably going to die here. And as I think about this, I realize that we all kind of have the tendency to relegate Jesus to the spiritual matters. We'll go to him for the afterlife and we'll go to him for the rules for how to live and treat people. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty details, we, we've got to figure out how to do this because loving my neighbor isn't going to pay the bills. A couple of years ago, um, Brandy and I had been counselors at a church camp and we got home to find that our washing machine didn't work. And if there's ever a time that you want your washing machine to work, it's when you come home from a church camp in the summer in Florida. And when we were at the church camp, the speaker that week had talked about having the audacity to pray for everything, pray for things that you, you're not even sure if you believe God will do it. And he was giving examples of people being healed and stuff like that. And our friend Rossi was at the house and he had been at church camp too. And I, and I told Brandy and Rossi, I was like, I think God wants us to pray over this washing machine. And they kind of laughed at me. I'm like, I'm serious. I think we're supposed to do this. So the three of us laid hands on our washing machine and I prayed that the Lord would heal it. And then we all kind of like held our breaths and I tried it and it didn't work. And it sort of reconfirmed kind of what we all skeptically thought, like God's, he's there for the spiritual stuff. He's not really like concerned about the minute details, like a washing machine, like he'll provide for us so that we can fix our washing machine or something, but this one's on me. So I got on YouTube and I started trying to fix it myself and I couldn't. And then we ended up posting on Facebook, hey, does anybody have a used washing machine they're getting rid of. 
And that night, Brandy got a text from someone in our church and they said, meet us at Sears tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And they bought us a brand new washing machine. I got more than what I asked for. When the disciples cried out to Jesus in the boat, they had no idea that they were crying out to the Lord of all creation. They had no idea how he could actually answer them. In verse 39, it says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And I want you to pause for a moment and really try to imagine that you're in that boat in the middle of the night in a storm, that this isn't just a Bible story, this isn't just a flannel graph from Sunday school when you were a kid. But if you are in this storm and you are at your wit's end and you are convinced this is, this is how it ends and you see this guy sleeping and you wake him up to let him know this is the end. And then this groggy man, maybe with his eyes half closed still, utters three words and the wind and the storm cease and it is utterly still you would be terrified. More terrified of this man than of the storm. You would wonder, what is this power? What is this authority? In verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? By this point, Jesus' disciples have been with him for a while. In Mark chapter 1, they saw Jesus heal a leper. And they know that he's got to be at least some kind of prophet. Because in the Old Testament, the only person to ever heal a leper was Elisha. So they're thinking he's something like Elisha. He's something like a prophet. But they don't understand fully who he is. This is the backstory on the disciples. This is what is helpful to know about Galilean Jews. They grew up in that little region next to the Sea of Galilee, and Galilean Jews were the most religious Jews in Jesus' day. They didn't have scriptures in their home. So if they wanted to know them, they either had to go to their village synagogue and read the scroll there, or they memorized them. Galilean little boys and girls when they were four to five years old were sent to the synagogue to study under the rabbi. And by the time they were 10 to 12 years old, they had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. I don't know about you, but I hire five people if I just read Leviticus. But they had it memorized. And then they studied the Psalms. And then they studied the prophets. So these men in this boat had a concordance in their mind. And I want you to realize when they saw a prophet asleep on a boat during a storm, it's making them go back to a story that they've heard before. It's making them go back to Jonah. So we're briefly going to skim Jonah chapter 1, and I want you to see some of the similarities. Verse 2 of Jonah 1 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, 
that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Jonah was a prophet, and God is calling him to Nineveh. Nineveh was the center of the Assyrian Empire. And why that's significant is Assyria, they were not God-fearing people. The Jews saw them as enemies. In fact, later they would conquer northern Israel and send them into exile. These were not people that Jonah wanted to go to. These were not the people that Jonah wanted God to have mercy on and bless. He wanted them to be punished for what they had done. So instead of going to Nineveh, he got into a boat going somewhere else. And in verse four, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then in verse five, it says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep, just like Jesus was fast asleep on the boat. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God with a little G. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. But Jonah explains to them that he doesn't just pray to a local deity, a God with a lowercase g. He serves the Lord of heaven and earth, the one true God who made the land and the sea. And he tells them, I'm running from him. I'm the reason this storm is happening. So if you throw me over, you're gonna be okay. You guys know this story. So in verse 14, the sailors, says, it says, therefore they called out to the Lord, to the Lord, not to their local God. They called out to the one true God. And in verse 15, it says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then in verse 16, it says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, the same way the disciples feared Jesus exceedingly after he calmed the storm. There's one more passage that I'm going to briefly read for you. It's Psalm 107. It's a psalm that these disciples knew well. This is starting in verse 23. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end the same way the disciples were at their wits end when they woke Jesus up. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, what's important about these two passages isn't so much what they share in common with Mark 4, but what's different. In Jonah, in Psalms, the sailors cry out to God. But in Mark, who do the sailors cry out to? They cry out to Jesus. In Jonah and Psalms, who calmed the sea? God calmed the sea. But in Mark, who calms the sea? Jesus doesn't pray. 
He doesn't call on God. He calms the sea himself. So we have to ask, just like the apostles did, who then is this man? And the resounding answer is Jesus is God. Jesus is mighty God, the Messiah who they've been waiting for. In fact, later in Mark 8, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. I think this story was a turning point for them because Jesus displayed his power over the wind and the waves, but he also symbolically displayed his power over the evil spirits. It's almost like he has exercised the sea. He's saying, you don't need to fear the sea because I am mightier than the sea. When he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Mark 5, you know the first thing he does? He casts out demons. Everywhere he's going, he's setting the world right. He's showing people what the kingdom of God is like. No more evil, no more chaos, no more fear. He's given a foretaste of what it'll be like when he returns and he makes all things new. So in one 24-hour period, Jesus' disciples have seen him have divine authority over the physical realm and the spiritual realm, and they realize that Jesus is God, that Jesus is mighty. And mighty is, it's kind of an archaic word. Like, we all know what it means when we read it, but we don't use it a lot. It's kind of like splendid, you know? Like, no one's going to say, how is church today? It was splendid. No one says that. Like, we know those words. But mighty, of course, means someone who possesses might, but of course you can't use a form of the word in the definition. So here's the definition of might. Great and impressive power or strength, especially of a nation, large organization, or natural force. And I want you to think, how do nations, how do powerful people, how do companies use their might? They usually use it to consolidate power and to dominate, to defeat the enemies, to serve themselves and their own, and they usually do it at the expense of others. When one person or one nation gets too much power, it historically has never, ever, ever, ever been a good thing. You might be familiar with the quote from Lord Acton. He was a British historian in the 19th century. He said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it conveys the idea that as a person's power increases, their morals and their ethics tend to diminish. And that's why we're suspicious of people who have too much power. That's why we don't want individuals and companies and nations having too much power. There's this notion that you might have heard before called might makes right. And it's a very dangerous way of thinking. It's the idea that those who are powerful can do whatever they want unchallenged simply because they have the power, even if it's unjustified. The most horrible example of this that I can think of is Hitler and the Nazi regime who did horrible, inhumane things 
because they could. And for a time, they went unchallenged. And their goal was to have more and more and more power. And the way they got it was by crushing their enemies. But then there's Jesus. Jesus is mighty God. He's Lord of all creation. Last week, Pete talked about John chapter 1. It says that Jesus was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Jesus not only has might, but he has the right. He has the authority to do as he pleases because he is the author. But think about how Jesus used his might. He used his might, his power, his authority, not to consolidate power, not to be served, but to serve. He was born a helpless baby, just like we are. He had all the power and resources in the world, but he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn. God was showing us a different way to use power. And when Jesus did use his power, he used it to bless others. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He came to set the captives free and to love his enemies. When Jesus went to the land of the Gerasenes, he didn't go there to defeat them. He didn't go there to humiliate them. He didn't go there to enslave them. He went there to set them free from the tyranny of sin because his war was not against flesh and blood. At the Last Supper, during the meal, Jesus took off his outer garment and washed the feet of his disciples. And the most astounding thing to me about this is not simply that he's touching grown men's dirty feet, because that's horrible in itself. Judas was still there. Judas, the man who had betrayed Jesus was in the room and Jesus could have rained fire on him. But mighty God, Lord of all creation, got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his enemy. And of course, he submitted to a humiliating, brutal death. And he did it, like Craig said earlier, so that we could have relationship with him. He did it because he loves you and because he loves me. And we can choose to live insular lives and we can choose to stay on this side of the sea and see those people over there as the bad guys. But the kingdom of God always steps into the darkness and into the chaos to bring light and to bring hope and to bring love. And that is what the birth of Christ is all about. It's about the light of the world coming into the darkness and bringing hope. And so I want to ask you to think practically this morning. Who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the Gerasenes in your life that are different from you, who have different heritage from you, who have different morals, who have different beliefs than you, and it would be easy to see them as the enemy? What does it mean for us to follow the example of our humble, mighty God and step into the darkness? And I want to tell you one very practical way that you can do that this morning. On your way out, 
you can grab one of the plants in the foyer and go home and pray and ask God, who are the garrisons in my life? And you can offer them this gift. And the hope is that they'll come on Christmas Eve and they'll hear the good news. But even if they don't, you have a chance to offer them a small token of kindness and show them what the kingdom of God is like. Some of you this morning have might and power. Some of you are popular in school. Some of you are athletic. Some of you are influential. Some of you are successful in business. And I want to ask you, what will you do with that? Will you point toward yourself and your accomplishments? Will you consolidate power? Or will you use the gifts that God has given you to bless others, to serve others, and to point them toward mighty God, not just in word, but in deed also? Some of you this morning feel powerless. You don't have many friends. You're stuck in a job that drains you and you don't know a way out. Some of you are worried about how you're going to afford Christmas and the bills that you have to pay. Some of you, money's not an issue, but there's no amount of money that's going to bring back the person that you've lost. There's no amount of money that's going to heal the ache that's in your heart. And I want you to know the good news of the gospel is that our mighty God loves you and he came to serve He is able. He's mighty to save and he is able. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. There is a morning coming because the story didn't end with Jesus on the cross. He rose from the dead. Three days later, he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God and he is coming back. That is the great Christian hope. This Advent, it's a time of anticipation. We think back to the people of God awaiting the Messiah, but it's a time of anticipation for us too when we long for the day of the Lord, when there will be no more weeping, when he will make all things new. In that day, there won't be any question if he's mighty. On his Short time on earth, 2,000 years ago, he didn't do a lot to show his might. Only a few people got to see it. But when he returns, everyone will know. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want for every single one of you, for that not to be a moment of fear, a moment of, oh shoot, I've missed it. I want it to be a time of excitement and joy when you can say, that's my big brother. And we're going home. And he loves me. So even if you find yourself in a dark night, know that morning is coming. And let's be thankful this Advent season that a light has come into the world. And that these troubles that we have, these heartaches that we have are momentary. And because our mighty God humbled himself and broke into this world and died the death that we deserve, death and heartache 
do not have the final word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, give us joy, give us hope, give us peace. When we feel powerless, let us hope in you, our mighty God. When we feel mighty, when we feel proud, when we have the propensity to point to ourselves and our accomplishments and our gifts, let us remember that you are mighty God and that every good gift comes from you. I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters. Let them be a light in Central Florida. I pray that these plants, as little living organisms, would point people to you, our creator. We pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified in this room and in this city. We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.